Everything about this moment in history seems uniquely designed to challenge our mental health. We are suffering, we need answers, and we need help. That's why I'm so thrilled to be partnering with Sound Mind Live and Consequence of Sound to host their new podcast series, Going There. I'm Dr. Mike Friedman, clinical psychologist and life coach. With Going There, I will talk with musicians who struggle with their mental health, just like us. After all, mental illness affects us all. And the same artists who have stepped up to share their wonderful work with us are now sharing the intimate details of their journey in living with mental illness. We are going to ask the tough questions, and we're going to have the difficult conversations, all so that we can learn from each other. But more importantly, to shine a light on the difficult topic of mental illness so that we can all come out of the darkness and get the care we need. So we hope you join us on this journey. Going there, the crossroads where music and mental health meet. Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. And I Laura said I'm Laura. <laughs> I'm Laura. And Laura could not make it to uh, she couldn't make it tonight, but she will be back next week. She'll be back. She'll da, 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 da. Yeah, that was that was it starts my, early. It, starts <laughs> it does. Early. Oh yeah. Buckle up, everybody. And um, I'm Mike. <laughs> just for the record, I am Mike. <laughs> and we are joined by a very special guest today. Uh, she is a writer and a lawyer, and she is the co-host of a pod. I think Mike, you might be familiar with a little bit. It's called, yeah, it's called the Pod and the Pendulum. <laughs> Lindsay Travis is joining us today. Hello. We're all colliding. We're all- <laughs> I know. <laughs> A George so- divided cannot stand. <laughs> we are all here. Oh, we are. And I'm so excited. Thank you so Killing much for joining us. Independent Mike. Um, thank you. I'm really excited. <laughs> so this is a comfort horror episode, and we define comfort horror as the horror movies that make us feel good or they make us feel better. Maybe they're movies that we've seen a million times or that we grew up watching. Anything that makes us feel better when we watch it is a comfort horror movie. And holy shit, I am so excited to talk about our movie this week that I think I might die. Uh, We are watching history's greatest movie, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. It's like the crowd goes wild. I know. I'm so excited. And you know, someone out there is like, eh, technically this is sci-fi. I know. You know. You, my friend. (laughs) You can eat it. I had definitely like a crisis about that because um, like T2 is my favorite movie of all time. Mm-hmm. But if you ask my like favorite horror movie or favorite scary movie, like the answer to that is Scream. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I was like, oh, 
hold on. I had to like do like a lot of reflection. Yeah, you know, I don't consider this my favorite horror movie, but I do consider it my favorite Mm -hmm. movie. That's interesting because I hadn't thought about that. But I definitely think that it has horror elephant elephants. Elephants. (laughs) I'm just that excited. I think I might call it sci-fi first, but it's definitely a horror movie or at least falls under that Mm -hmm. umbrella. Well, speaking of this movie, before we talk about all of that stuff, we're going to give a brief synopsis in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while. So here's your spoiler warning. In the near future, the war against the machines is raging. Once again, Skynet has sent a Terminator back in time to kill the leader of the resistance, Sarah's son, John, who is now 13 years old and living with foster parents. Thank goodness the resistance was also able to send a protector for John, and he's got a familiar face. Both Terminators catch up to John at the local Galleria, and we find out this time the T-800, a.k.a. Arnie, is a good guy! Wow. Oh my God. Twist. I know. Uh, in an amazing chase involving motorcycles, Mack trucks, and even bigger motorcycles, Arnie saves John from the T-1000, a newer liquid metal model that can shapeshift and do just about anything, especially look like a cop. Now on the run, John and Arnie go to Pescadero State Mental Hospital to break out Sarah, who was incarcerated after attempting to blow up a building, presumably to prevent Judgment Day from happening. But Sarah is taking matters into her own hands because she's amazing. She's in the process of breaking herself out when both Terminators show up. She's confronted with this iteration of the T-800 and after the iconic come with me if you want to live line must decide to trust the machine that tried to kill her in 1984. They escape from the hospital and head south as Sarah struggles to reconnect with John. She decides to murder the scientist most directly but unwittingly responsible for the creation of Skynet, Miles Dyson, and invades his home using an arsenal of guns. She changes her mind just in time for Arnie and John to show up. They convince Miles to destroy all of his work and head to the lab in the middle of the night to finish the job. While they're preparing to blow up the lab, all of the police in all of LA show up to take the group down. Having sworn to John that he won't kill anyone, Arnold fends off the cops long enough for the group to set the bombs. Miles is shot as they're about to escape and stays behind with the detonator. It's really sad. But the T-1000 has made no such vow and catches up to our group, setting off another awesome chase with a variety of vehicles that ends at a steel mill. There, he's frozen by liquid nitrogen, then shattered by a bullet from Arnold, but his advanced technology gives him the ability to regenerate. It seems like our trio just can't catch a break. After several epic battles on a series of metal scaffoldings, Arnie backs the T-1000 up against a pit of molten steel. He uses a very big gun to knock him into the hellish pit where the T-1000 flails, shape-shiftingly evilly, before finally, finally winking out of existence but the mission is not yet complete. There's one computer chip left. Arnold must terminate himself to make sure none of the technology survives. John is devastated as he has come to see Arnold as a father figure. The two share a touching moment before Sarah helps lower the OG Terminator into the molten pit. We close with Sarah musing on the future she once believed was set in stone, but now views with optimism. Because if a Terminator can learn the value of human life, maybe we can too. Oh, misty-eyed. I know it's so good. Yeah. Oh, oh the my real goodness. friends were the terminators we met we along the way. way. <laughs> For those we terminated along the way. Mm-hmm. Oh man. 
<sighs> so now let's do our feelings check, which is where we talk about our first experiences with this movie and how we feel when we watch it. And Lindsay, you have said that this is your favorite movie as well. And I would love to hear about your first experiences with it and how it makes you feel. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite movie it makes me feel so much that I am genuine when I say that I'm misty-eyed from your synopsis um (laughs) I am too like I cried twice last night (laughs) um yeah it makes me cry every time I watch it I actually um was trying to think when the first time I watched it was but I definitely saw it first before the first Terminator movie because I always lament being robbed of that moment where Arnie or the T-800 uh, pulls out the gun at the Galleria and shoots over John's head and mm-hmm. being like the first time someone saw that in theaters if it hadn't been spoiled by the trailer which I'm sure it was they were probably like oh my god and I lament mm-hmm. that I didn't get to experience that organically yeah. like Sarah Connor did with her like <gasps> mm-hmm. uh, her like breathy terrified moment so I don't remember but it's definitely a movie I've seen countless times maybe the most out of any movie Cause I used to watch it like every time I wasn't feeling great. Cause it makes me cry every time. And I find it really cathartic. Like one thing I always associate with it. And like, that was a thing throughout high school. Like I always watched it all the time when I wasn't feeling great. And when I was an undergrad, I uh, lived in a like traditional residence for my first year with a roommate where you like share a tiny room. And my roommate like knew that like, I wasn't in a good spot if I was watching T2. Like she would come back to see me just like wailing with like, lava all over my screen or hot molten steel all over my screen and she'd be like oh you need me to vacate for a few minutes is what you need um yeah so that would be (laughs) that's how it makes me feel but in a cathartic way like I'm never sad at the end of Terminator I'm always like oh art yeah (laughs) (laughs) and hope you know section hope yes hope sacrifice virtue so good um yeah so yes, I love it. That would be my <laughs> Mike. What about you? So this would be I don't. I'm trying to think of the first time I saw it, and I believe it had to be on VHS. It definitely had to be on VHS. But this was a movie that everybody in my circle was like aware of because you could not escape the Guns and Roses music video for "We Could You Could Be Mine," uh, and. I think it's like really hard to convey how big that video was and, and how huge Guns N' Roses was from like 88 to 91. Like everybody fucking loved that band. So like the video made this look like the most badass movie of all time. And it was at a point where like we I, and I just have like very specific memories like we were playing pool at like the like the little like romper room above the garage of like Lee Kor's house and I remember it was Lee Kor because everybody was in love with his mom because she was like the most (laughs) beautiful mom on the block and he would get so upset and angry when you would say that like godly your mom is so hot and (laughs) shut up that's my mom and then this video would come on so I have these really specific memories of clips of this movie and then seeing it like on VHS with friends but I remember it more as being one of like the first like kick-ass, like being like a two-disc DVD, like it was a double, um, the cover of it was like thicker than most DVDs. And at the time, like I worked for a company called Tweeter, we got like a discount at Tower Records. So we like bought it and this was when plasma TVs were $20,000. 
And I worked in a store where you would routinely sell them because like, that's what people could afford. And you'd be like, right guys, I'm done for the day. I just made two grand. So it was awesome. But we would like get crazy takeout food and gather in like the theater room and watch T2 on like the 50 inch plasma on crazy, a crazy speaker system. And it would just be like a bunch of 20 something like dudes in downtown Boston watching this movie and then like going out into the city at night and just like really happy memories of like an awesome time of my life. So this movie, I, and I'm a little bit of a weirdo and that I have like a slight preference for the first Terminator because it's more of a slasher movie and I just love how gritty and down and dirty it is. Mm-hmm. But that said, like this is peak James, like James Cameron has never been better than he has yeah. been. Arnold has never been and again it's one of those things where it's hard to relate like there are not movie stars that resonate like Arnold Schwarzenegger did in the mid 80s through the early 90s like the run Mm -hmm. that he had I don't think for an action movie star has never been replicated and I just think the way the system works now like it never will be again you cannot undersell this oversell, I mean, this guy's charisma and magnetism on screen, just He's like the last action hero. Oh, literally, literally. Right. So, yeah, and it's like this perfect yeah. marriage of him having just the right skill set and like personality to fit this very like hyper masculine role that it's just, yeah, medium he, art person. Yeah, marriage. he had a lane or he had two lanes because I think he's like gifted at some comedy as well. Mm-hmm. Like, playing against persona um he's very intelligent if you look up the oral history of how he got um oh god how he got total recall made like how that was a passion project for him Mm. like it's really interesting like the steps he took to make sure that movie got made he just had this like uncanny knack of like what he wanted like what should be the next logical step that he should do for his career so that it built and built and built. So I don't know, like it's it's hard for me to say a hard negative thing about Arnold. It really, really is. Yeah, me too. And I know that he um, has got some problematic um, history with his treatment of women. Um, yeah, I don't you know. know a some ton infidelity. Of- yeah, and I think some kind of like when your persona is hyper masculine, I think there's a little misogyny no. that just kind of goes hand in hand with that. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that to excuse it, but he he seems like he generally means well. Yeah. When especially like what I've seen him do recently. Mm-hmm. And I he is one of my all-time favorite actors too because of that run in the mm-hmm. 90s and because he's in my favorite movie. So this is this is my all-time favorite movie as well. And I also, I think it's probably the movie I've seen the most out of any movie. Um, I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I recorded it off of USA. So I, one, had the edited version, which I did not realize until, was edited until like adulthood when he wasn't saying, um, gosh, what's the thing he says? Oh, dorkwad. Mm-hmm. He says dickwad. And I was like, what? He's saying oh dickwad. <laughs> I know, as he said, dorkwad for like my entire childhood. (laughs) I was like, what is going on? Anyways, so I would watch this VHS all the time, like this in Dirty Dancing. It was one or the other, like over the summer when I didn't have anything to do. 
And um, like so much that I used to play this game where there was a commercial break before they pull up to the hospital, like all the cops are going to go talk to Sarah. And I played this game to see if I could not miss a second of the movie, but not see a second of commercials. And it was just this pausing and playing game just right. And I got it one time and it was amazing. That's I know it is. <laughs> it really was. I mean, it's like the dumbest thing, but it was it was just part of my childhood you know yeah um, i'm thinking i must have had it on vhs too because i only had a vhs in my room for a long time i remember in like high school making my mm -hmm. friends come over to watch it yeah i just would watch it over and over again and i think i eventually bought it on vhs um mm -hmm. and then bought it on dvd and like when i watch it it's like every second of it is just perfect to me you know like every minute is iconic you know down to the waitress at the beginning who like is startled and then like looks down at his dick and is like, mm. she's like yeah <laughs> i love that lady but like the more that i watch it especially now when i watch it as i'm older like there's so much more that resonates with me about it like it's it's kind of like if you think about scream 2 like we talked a lot in our our month on ptsd about like a response to trauma and how mm -hmm. that is a lot of what sydney's arc is and i think it's the same thing with sarah connor it's mm -hmm. just it goes in a totally different way and i think it's fascinating to mm -hmm. kind of yeah. look at and then you know there's the whole what does feminism mean and what can that mean for a woman and what does it mean for a mother and it just which I'm sure we're gonna get into but just I, I just fucking love this movie so much I can't stand it I watched it last night and I had the biggest stupid grin on my face yeah. the entire time until yeah. I started crying and then I started yeah. smiling again and it's just like I just want to drink in every second of it we we talked about martyrs for two hours oh, last yeah. night <laughs> didn't have and that then, grin on your face and then I silently wept into a pillow until I yeah. fell asleep so oh. I, uh, I watched like a choice sitcom and ate a bunch of Indian food at midnight and then went to bed <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was like, okay. I'm still um, too scared. Yeah, to my wife was like, "Did you sleep okay? Like you were tossing and turning, and you got oh. up and I'm like, no, no, I didn't." Oh. <laughs> um, horror, everybody. Two months yeah. coming up, hard in the bed. <laughs> hey, not exactly comfort horror, but <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Well, so let's talk about the specific stuff. What do we love about this movie besides absolutely everything? everything. Do we want to talk about like the stuff that we love or do we want to talk about like the larger themes first? Because I think there are like, I could talk about the score till the end of time because it's so good. Yeah. And it's so like machinist, but like also kind of mourning and melancholy, which is just the perfect score for this movie. Wow. But oh man, yeah. Like, where do you begin? Because there's so much. I mean, I know. Well, you have something interesting in your notes about fate, Lindsay, and mm. I would love to talk about that. Okay. Because, you know, there's no fate but what we make there's for no ourselves. There's no fate but what we make. Even though um, I don't think that's the actual message from the first movie. Is that right? Well, I have thoughts. I have okay. a lot of thoughts <laughs> about its turn. It's about its concept of fate and future. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, so I'm really into sci-fi. I love time stuff um, specifically. And um, in undergrad, I studied philosophy focused on metaphysics. And so things like time and fate and things like that are just, I love them. Like the thing I bring up all the time, like my final thesis paper was the metaphysics of Schwarzenegger movies. So I have like spent oh, wow. a lot of time <laughs> um, and a lot of brain power on uh, Schwarzenegger movies, uh, philosophy and metaphysics. And I love the example of fate in this movie specifically. It's a big part of why 
and I won't go here, but it's a big part of why I like won't watch the sequels to it mm-hmm. is because I like its concept of fate and I don't want to mess with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the whole no fate, but what we make is interesting. Um, different ideas about fate in philosophical terms, talk about things like determinism and chaos and, you know, is it fathomable to predict what is going to happen in the universe? And if we started again, would everything happen the exact same way? And sort of what does that mean? I do believe that like we can, if we start everything from scratch, it would happen the exact same way. Hmm. If that's kind of in its simplest terms. And I love that the movie goes against that. It basically says that it is possible to change the future in a strange way. It doesn't because it's almost a time loop. It's not looking at time in a linear way, because of course that they go back in time is how they create the future. So it's a mm-hmm. little bit more complex because it's creating a loop, but I just love its concept of like, you can change things when you get information, you can change the future and the future isn't set. And that is like a huge theme is so important. I love that it's a thing that only John really understands. And that's how he connects with his mother and understands her and what she's thinking. I love it as a theme of hope. Um, Sarah mm-hmm. is not at all hopeful ever. Like she's the mm-hmm. saddest, grimmest, darkest person but she does have a lot of hope because she does believe that she can change the future. And that's the thing that kind of grounds her is that like, there's no fate, but what we make, like I can do this. Yeah. And I just love that. I love that theme. I love where it goes. And I kind of hate that that got lost later. And that's something yeah. that I just really love about it. Yeah. Um, I like it as kind of an empowering message too, you know, and I have not thought nearly as deeply about it as you have. And so I was listening and I was like, wow, you're right. That is really cool because it is fascinating. But when I, I think when I think about it, because I think of this movie in such like feminism terms, like mm-hmm. I think of this is like I don't have to play the role that I was assigned and like I don't have to just be this one thing. I can be whatever I want and I get to create my own future. Like there's a story um, that Stephen King wrote that I've been thinking about a lot called Mrs. Todd Shortcut and it's one of my favorites and she just there's a line where she says a woman wants to drive and I just think about that all the time like I just want to be in control of my own destiny and I don't want to have to like that read. Oh my gosh, yes. You should read that story if you haven't. It's so yeah, good. I love that read. I never thought of the no fate part that way in those terms. I really like that. Oh, well, I really like yours too. And I think <laughs> that we're both really we're cool. Like, and <laughs> this movie is amazing. <laughs> Terminator, God. Oh. I know. So much. Oh. I think no fate, but what we make for ourselves was my senior quote in high school too. And I think I, with There Is No Spoon from The Matrix, which is another one of my favorites, but mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's fascinating with this because if you take the first movie, if Kyle Reese had not gone back in time, would any of this have happened or would he have been a completely different person? So how much does the actions to try to change the future create the future? And I think you said it a little better than I did, but it's just... um, it's fascinating. And it's one, like, I think a lot of times when there are time travel movies, if you pull the thread, it completely unravels and you're like, okay, this doesn't make any sense at all. But this one, I don't think, I think it's vague enough that it still holds together. And then something else explodes. So you're like, okay, yeah. well, and you're like, yeah, still whatever. on board. I think exactly. like, it actually does a pretty decent job. I think of all of them. And again, I'm like, I'm that person who will like draw the timeline. Like I will mm-hmm. figure it out. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like that's 
the type anyway and I think that this movie actually does or these movies is the two do like a pretty solid job like of course again I'm saying like because they went back in time is how it was created but that kind of doesn't really happen till later like Kyle Reese coming back is what obviously is how John is conceived so you know in the Kyle Reese in the future knows that which is bizarre <laughs> he's like dad it's very weird or I guess John in the future knows that versus Kyle but so it is a little bit of a confusing kind of time loop messy thing but the whole arm thing doesn't really come up until late like the whole creation situation happens a bit later so it does start more simply um and kind of evolves there but I still think that like it leaves the opportunity for a closed loop and the confusing part I think is when it's like okay we tried again you know, mm-hmm. this Terminator didn't work. Let's try a second Terminator. Yeah. That's, I think, where you start to get into a little bit of time questions because it's like, who realized that this didn't work and we had to send another one back a month later or a few years later? Yeah. Well, I think what's really great about this is you have like a nice two-picture arc. Mm-hmm. That like, has a, mm-hmm. like a very neat start, middle, and end to it. And because it's all, you know, it's James Cameron's world and he's like just very adept at world building overall and you know he's also very adept at like you know we see this with aliens like taking like the small scale of the original and then like blowing it up and this is really him i would say at his peak in terms of like not just concerned with visual effects because this movie really changed the landscape of like Mm -hmm. this and jurassic park that came in its heels afterwards like what we can do with visual effects but also like his peak storytelling as well. Like he was really invested in the story, not just like what sort of spectacle are we going to create with this? What I really like about that, I just I was thinking about this when I was rewatching it today is that you don't get a sequel for this movie until like 12 years later, it's 2003 yeah, uh, when Terminator college. 3 comes up. So in a movie that is like this big, usually like you would have the opening weekend and then by Tuesday, all right, Terminator 3 is now going to be, you know, it has a release date, like two years from now, you know, Arnold will be back uh, is the next Terminator. And instead what happens is like James Cameron goes on to make True Lies. He goes on to make The Abyss. He goes on to make The Titanic. Like what fucking run in the 90s? Instead a run of, of integrity no. though he was no. like i finished my story and now i'm no. gonna tell you another yeah. one which is like yeah that's like completely different stories <sighs> right. too like he was like i did it anyway mm-hmm. i would yeah. much rather see rather than see sequel after sequel churned out i would rather someone take that money and say you know hey you obviously like you know karen kusama jennifer kent jordan peele you obviously know how to tell a story here is 20, 30, $40 million. What's the next thing you want to tell? As mm-hmm. opposed to like, what's the next thing in this property that we can sequelize yeah. and merchandise? So to Stop me- Stop making more Pacific yeah. Rim movies. Stop making more <laughs> Kingsman movies. Realize that those first movies were perfect and make another one like them. But yeah, right. let, let the creator- <laughs> I don't know a single person that's interested in Avatar 2. I really don't. And I don't- is no. it for? I don't. I don't know. mean that facetiously. Like, and I don't. And I, I've never seen Avatar. Period. But I don't know. I really like it. No, it's no, good. No. Yeah. yeah, it's good. It's I good would movie. just rather see him not spend the next twenty years of his life making four more of these movies. And I wish somebody, like maybe George Lucas, needs to have an intervention with Cameron and be like, "Dude, you need to." I yeah. know. I know where this goes. Like, you need to let it go. <laughs> don't do it, man. Don't and do it. And it's funny man. that we're talking about this. 
about a sequel because I feel mm. like normally the, this is the conversation you have about the mm. first movie and you're like okay like Avatar 1 was great that's all we need and this is like I would consider this well I think it's the greatest movie ever mm. period but I think it's the best sequel because I think it builds on the world but I think you're right like the story ends and it ends in the perfect place mm. and we don't need anything else yeah. I will say I like Terminator 3 more because I had that that was when I saw it in the theaters on opening night I was so fucking excited and I had a really good experience it's yeah it's good it's not terrible and I'm not the person to really let a sequel ruin a movie Mm -hmm. for me Mm -hmm. either but man when I saw Dark Fate when I finally saw it like Mm -hmm. I I had to, I paused like after the first 10 minutes, like I had to pause it. And then I went down in my closet and I just cried for like 10 oh. minutes. Cause it like, I, it hit me. And I don't know if you've seen it and you know what I'm talking about. I like about. haven't, but is Dark Fate the, the newest one? It's the one with Lynn. Yeah. So I watched that. <laughs> okay. I like, it's, I put on like blinders for the whole expanded Terminator franchise. I just like don't want to know about it. And I, yeah, but everyone was talking about that opening scene like it was like a feat of cgi that like had to be seen to be believed so i was like you know what fine i'll just i'm sure i can find it on youtube i'll watch it and i watched it and i was like what this is so bad i know it also sucks like that scene and that's not the conversation for today but that scene sucks (laughs) you made me you took something that was perfect and made it a waste of time and it Mm -hmm. sucked and also, like, looks terrible. Like, yeah. what is everybody talking about? I know. No. It's like, I why? tapped out after Salvation. Mm. So I haven't seen Genesis. I haven't seen Dark Fate. I think I saw the first season of the Terminator television show, the mm. Sarah I Connor watched a little Chronicles. Bit of that. I heard it's good. Which was That's really good. good. And I think I might actually have to, like, just do a rewatch of that. But it's one that ended on a cliffhanger that blew the whole world open at the end. So that's kind mm. of a bummer. You know, and Thomas Decker, who's like plays John Connor and that is like one of the few good things about the Elm Street remake. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's something yeah. I think maybe I got to hunt down and watch. Okay. Rewatch. I will say about Dark Fate, I don't think it's a bad movie. And there are some things that it does really well. And I love Linda Hamilton. Like yeah. I did really enjoy seeing her again, but mm-hmm. just the way it began, I was like, fuck you, Dark Fate. Literally like you movie. Right. <laughs> yeah. It was like. Thanks for smacking me in the face. Yeah, it feels like that movie only got made because like Halloween 2018 mm-hmm. was a hit. And it was like, yep. oh, like, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was fantastic in Halloween 2018. And people will, you know, spend their, you know, spend their money on this. And I think by yeah. that time, like the Terminator franchise had been kind of, yeah. you know, been yeah. through the ringer a bit. It also made me in a weird way. This is dramatic, but it made me lose a little bit of my like faith in James Cameron because mm-hmm. Maybe faith is the wrong word, but again, like when I was like, because of his integrity, he ended Terminator 2 and he made more things. And then Mm. he was like, I'm going to make a bunch of Avatar movies. I was like, that doesn't seem great. Like, I trust Mm. you because you've given me no reason not to. Mm. And then Mm. when he like did his whole, I give my blessing to dark fate baloney, I was like, okay, he's gone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, yeah, gone is the finished after two movies, James Cameron, we knew and loved. (laughs) Yeah. Here's James Cameron, who's like, trust me, guys, it's so good. That's kind of how I feel about Stephen King, just yeah, wanting Stephen to King is crime now. <laughs> like, stop, You're like, make it scary. And I mean, I love him. He's still probably my favorite person I've never actually met. But mm, I feel that. Uh, 
I still love James Cameron. Don't get me wrong. But I was yeah, me like, too. I do too. Because of what he's given me. You know, yeah, he's given me a lot. Stephen King famously was like, the Dark Tower movie is brilliant. It's one of the greatest pieces of hey, cinema. Man, and then he like, will shill his own stuff. And then like no a shame. month after it came and went, he's like, yeah, that was a giant piece of shit. I don't know what right. they were thinking. Ooh, so, I know. Yeah, so when Cameron tried to convince me that he had, like, given his blessing to this story, I was like, LOL, James. Um, right. And I'm on board for, like, the, like, Jamie Lee Curtis coming back and Linda Hamilton. Like, mm. I love yeah. that. And that's one of the things that I do like about Dark Fate is, like, mm -hmm. what other action movies star three female characters and mm -hmm. one who's in her 60s? Like, yeah. you don't see that. And that's great. I just feel like you have to have... You have to have more than just the contract. Yeah. You have to like develop your script well too. And mm -hmm. like care about the story that you're telling. And I feel right. like that just got lost a little well, bit. It's like Sigourney Weaver coming back for a, like, after she had it in her contract in Alien 3, like you're killing me off in Alien 3. I'm not doing these movies forever. And then for Resurrection, they basically just kept, you know, I mean, and she was very open about it. She's like, they just backed the Brinks truck up to the back of my you know, it was like Michael Caine doing uh, Jaws of Revenge. He's like, I've never seen the movie, but I saw the house, <laughs> saw the house it bought. It's mm -hmm. great. You know, and like, God yeah. love you. Get paid. Like Sigourney Weaver, Linda Hamilton, yeah. Amy Lee, like get paid, please. I, oh God. Yeah. Like I love Linda Hamilton. I, mm -hmm. I didn't see the movie. I knew I wasn't going to, but like I watched the trailer a hundred times for the moment of Me her, too. like where she like steps out of the car with mm -hmm. her, like with her gun and I was like she's dope and I just like mm -hmm. ugh, I mean what do you say about Linda Hamilton I will yeah. say something to like steer us back into how much I love too <laughs> um I remember when I watched the trailer for Dark Fate a big part of what lost me was like Uncanny Valley is the wrong uh term for it but kind of the floating camera problems that a lot of CGI action has uh the trailer really felt like that it felt really mm -hmm. like there's not a you know this is a generated thing and the camera doesn't make sense I'll find more details on exactly what I mean about that but mm -hmm. in comparison to like T2 the action is amazing like it yep. is all I mean it's not all practical it's very very practical with CGI layered in in groundbreaking ways at the time that make it look and feel really real really menacing the T1000 looks like he's really there he's not floating he is walking towards you and shattering and melting and all of these things. And it's just so like the the feel of it, the helicopter scene, the truck scenes, they all mm -hmm. feel so real. And like, there's never like, we're talking, you know, the late 80s mm -hmm. and this movie, it holds up. Like you could watch it, really it on your does. big screen in your basement. I was gonna say like, just you know, on your Blu-ray <laughs> and you're mm -hmm. still like, damn, that looks so sick no. like yeah so and great. you never lose track of what's happening that's it because that is something that I think dark fate falls prey to especially in the end like everything it's lit really well even though it feels really dark in a lot of places you know but like you always feel like you're there and you're in it and you're standing on the ground too and I hadn't thought about it that way but it mm -hmm. You're right. And it's just, it's so amazing. The only, like the, the, sometimes when the liquid metal, like I can see the age just for that, mm -hmm. but I give a lot of grace for that just because it was yeah. like brand new technology and so groundbreaking. But even yeah. then it doesn't look bad, you know? Yeah. Just thinking of like how the action is framed. And I'm thinking in particular of like the set piece where like John Connor's on like the moped, he's getting chased down by part. the, yeah, he's getting chased down by like the 18 wheeler and then Arnold is kind of tracking it from above. 
-hmm. and the way that is shot, like from you get it from multiple perspectives and you always get a sense of where everybody is. And there's a logic to it. Like, it's not mm -hmm. one of those things where like, and then all of a sudden magic and like, how do we explain it? Uh, you know, movies. And then like, that's it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. You always like, it feels like very tangible and very plausible and yeah. very exciting because of that. So it all makes perfect sense. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. And you can see it. And I think the moment when the truck comes off of the bridge, it might be my favorite moment mm -hmm. in all all of cinema because it just it's like it's one of those holy shit I thought I was safe moments mm -hmm. and then no things are going to explode in a way that I didn't think possible yeah. and then it's oh god that that part is just amazing and I love Edward Furlong there I think <sighs> for like a for a brand new actor like he really kills that role yeah. you he know he kills that role I like growing up and probably still now if I told my dad we were talking about Terminator 2 he'd probably launch into it without thinking about it um, we would always do the like Arnie and John Connor bits back and forth. Like I've oh. got <laughs> like, mm -hmm. just like rattle through that, like high pitched kid voice. I mean, we're talking about like the kid was famous for T2 and then like in Pet Cemetery 2 where he's the exact same character <laughs> being mm -hmm. like, you're not my real mom. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> not my mother, Todd. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like, he was just like the bratty, you're not my real parent kid. With the hair flip. Oh, yeah. the flow. Like he's oh, yeah. so perfect in that spot. He does so much by being like an emotional core because he's mm -hmm. gone through so much shit already. He's got so many reasons to be an adult when he's, and he's supposed to be, oh gosh, he's supposed to be 10 in the movie, but he's like 12. There's like, yeah, a, there's a messy timeline problem there. Yeah. I think I said he was 13 in the synopsis and that's what it feels like. But I like. think no, when you like but... do the, I think they like call him 13, but if you do the math, he's 10, but he was like 15. Yeah. Like there's some like weird messy math there mm -hmm. that I'm forgetting, but. He yeah. was actually um, 37. Yeah, he was Rose, 37 at the time. Rose okay. originally um, cast to Luke Perry. Yeah, which so. was. I was gonna... <laughs> which made it really difficult to de-age him when he was 76 yeah. for Dark Fate. Um, <laughs> but he uh, he does so much because he's gone through so much and you really mm -hmm. read that on him. Like he he's a kid. So, you know, when he's in the mall and he's already scared of cops, not scared of cops, he already hates cops. He's already a problem child. He's already fighting with his parents, his uh, foster parents all the time. And he's a brat and he's an ass and he steals money, which is like a <laughs> legit yeah. crime. Yeah. He's not just like, like a lot. Yeah, he like steals cash from an ATM with a computer. Like he's doing all that. But then when he's faced with things, he cries and he asks a lot of questions of the Terminator. And he always has this like childlike look when he talks to the Terminator. So he centers, the movie focuses on him in such a strong way. And then even though he doesn't have a lot of time that he spent with his mom, it's so much that when they're mm -hmm. back together, he's already like, mom, you're embarrassing me. Stop mm -hmm. talking about the mm -hmm. end of the world. Like, I love that moment. We have to be a little more constructive here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's so like, there's just so much that he does. Mm -hmm. like, and I feel like it gets overlooked because everybody else is doing such amazing work also. Yeah. yeah. He wants a dad. I mean, what he wants at the end of the day is he wants a dad. And that's why he like bonds so closely with the Terminator. Cause he talks to him about like, you know, everywhere that my mom is taking me like, yeah, I've done cool things. Like I've flown helicopters and shot guns and, but like everywhere I go, like my mom is like shacked up with these big weirdos. And then mm -hmm. whenever, like if there is someone that actually is kind of cool, my mom like blows it by talking about, oh, the end of the world is coming. And, you know, that's generally a turnoff for most people. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, 
he's like at the end of the day like he's just been bounced around from like place to place to place and like you know it's someone that has had to work with a number of kids that have been through foster care like it is so hard for them to make connections to people like they come to you with immediate distrust because they're all like all right when are you going to give up on me you know when are you going to kind of like cast me aside so you can see why he so desperately kind of wants to bond with like even more so than he does his mom like why he wants to bond with like the terminator because he just hasn't had that kind of like male authority figure in his life and speaking of which back-to-back movies with trevor and Candyman, and now todd and t2 like I'm trying to think of the actor's name, but he was like, "Do you need like a shitbag husband?" Like in the right. late, the early. 90s. I got that we part down for you. <laughs> I did not put that together. Like I watched this this time, and I was like, "I've seen both of those movies millions mm-hmm. of times," yeah. and blew my mind. I'm trying to find his. There it is, Xander Berkeley. That's yes. right. Yeah, I think he's like one of the big bads in one of the early seasons of 24. Mm-hmm. He's just right. like King Dirtbag Xander Berkeley. Like, Gross. Yeah, Gross but like still kind back. of a dipshit too. Yeah, you know? and I may have gotten that word because I think he actually calls him a dipshit. Did you just <laughs> call him a dipshit? <laughs> that's right. That's where that's coming from. Well, what's interesting though is when he relates to the Terminator, it's like one when he realizes that the Terminator is not trying to kill him, mm-hmm. but it's also when he realizes that he has to do what John says. And like, there's a cynical reading, I think of that of like a kid just wanting to control something or boss something around. But I think there's also underneath, like the Terminator listens to him and takes him seriously. And even though he doesn't agree, like he still like makes an effort to do what John wants. And I mean, he has to, and he's a machine, but I think that goes a long way to like establishing the trust Mm -hmm. in that relationship. There's also like, He's the first person that's ever protected John. Yeah. John obviously doesn't feel protected by the cops. He obviously Mm. doesn't feel protected by his foster parents. And his mother, even though she, quote, protected him, he says, like, it was like a childhood loss to training. And so he was very much utility for her. And she spent, like, all she did with him was train. And if you think about, like, kids, like, I'm sure you guys know way more about this than I do, but, you know, they look at their parents as these superhuman protectors, and John doesn't have a protector ever until this giant monster of a man of a cyborg shows up and quite literally puts his back between bullets and John. Mm-hmm. John is scared of this guy at first. He sees him, he recognizes him, and he has that like moment of pure fear. And then suddenly, like seconds later, that dude is putting himself in the way of bullets for him. And I think that's probably like a huge moment of like, this is the first person who protected him. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also moments where he's standing and it's night and then the sun has come up and he's still standing. Like there's Mm -hmm. several shots of him just standing and watching and like he's solely focused on protecting John. And that's where I could maybe that's like the real emotional core for me when I watch this now that I'm older, because like. And I've talked about this a little bit before, but like growing up with a narcissistic father and a mother who didn't really who more supported him than really protected me. Like, I think part of why I watched this movie over and over and over again is because this is basically a nuclear family where the parents are only focused on protecting John. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think the, the relationship with Sarah and John is a little more complicated, but like that was so, that was what I wanted, you know? And Mm -hmm. I I was watching this and I was like, ah, that's, that's what I want. And that's what I want to be as a parent too. And, you know, 
I don't know Cameron's background, but I think you have like a one-two punch of you have aliens and the family that is kind of put together when you have, I want to say it's Hicks, you have Ripley and you have Newt. You know, and I know in the director's cut, like it's revealed that like Ripley had a daughter that who had since passed on, Mm -hmm. but that's not really like, you don't, you don't see that. And I kind of usually just watch a theatrical, but you see like this maternal instinct and Ripley come out and she immediately wants to protect this little girl who's like lost, you know, whose family has been slaughtered in a really horrific way. And Mm -hmm. even though like Hicks and Ripley don't share any romantic moment, with one another like it's more of a relationship based on like this mutual respect for one another like they do very quickly form this kind of nuclear family bond and you see that again in terminator 2 where like obviously sarah connor and uh arnold you know they never hook up it's never like what do you have under there you know <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's we all know, you know the waitress saw it um, waitress that's right saw. yeah and we we'll um, see it in the first one too yep. yeah, so, i had forgotten about um, so Arnold had gotten off the steroids by then, apparently. So, but you see, like Cameron also has this really specific view of femininity, where yep. in like powerful women, where they have a motherly instinct, but they can also like kick your ass and shoot you, you know, basically like blow you away on the shooting range as well. It's this really oddly specific, like badass version of women. Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote a piece about this last summer when we were doing our, when Consequence of Sound was doing their blockbuster month about like the evolution of the female action hero. And I feel like, and I bookended it with Sarah Connor, although I think I talked a a little Mm -hmm. bit about Ripley too. But I see that as kind of, this is a step on the road to what actual female empowerment is, because Mm -hmm. there is a way that I could read Sarah here. And I've got thoughts about Sarah and Ripley as mothers that's maybe slightly to the left of this conversation. But, like, I could look at Sarah in this movie and say, okay, what Cameron thinks a strong woman is is a woman who acts like a man. Because she essentially takes all of the characteristics of um, the Terminator. And that, and I mean, I could read that as a reaction to trauma. Like, that's what she knows strength is. Mm -hmm. So that's what she's going to try to latch on to as powerful But I don't find it reductive because I think we see her struggle with with the weight of that. Like we see Mm -hmm. her when when she decides not to kill Miles, like it's not because, oh, there's a kid there and he's so cute and I'm a Mm -hmm. mom and I like kids. You know, it's like she recognizes the humanity in him. And I think that's when she sees that this this like veneer of masculinity that Mm -hmm. she's put on herself there's no room for humanity there. And that's when she expands. And that's why I don't find it reductive as far as a feminist character although I do think like further along the line like we'll start to see women who can fight like men if they want to but they don't have to and I think Mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically of Birds of Prey where there Mm -hmm. are like five different women who fight in completely different ways and look the way they want to and Mm -hmm. it's great but we wouldn't have that if we didn't have Sarah Connor here and I think this is a big step yeah, expanding on that and also somewhat differently, like, I mean, Cameron has said that Ripley and Connor were, you know, his tribute to motherhood. And he talked about that a lot, like the maternal elements of their characters are really important, I think. And I'd be careful here because I don't want to say that being um, a mother is this, you know, or being a parent is like a specific experience to women. And I also don't mm-hmm. think that to be all woman, you have to be a mother. So I, I wouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, want to sound like I'm saying that. But 
I think what's great about these characters, I remember a long time ago, um, do you guys remember the movie Salt with um, Angelina <laughs> yes. Jolie? And there was this whole bit that it was initially written for Tom Cruise. And then Oh, he, I didn't know that. Yeah. And he couldn't do it or didn't want it. I don't remember exactly. And it was- um, Maybe he read the script. Yeah. And it was said Angelina Jolie. And there was this kind of like discussion about- um, and this is like a hundred years ago, like, I don't really, you know, internet discourse was, I didn't even know what it looked like back then, but mm. there was kind of this discussion of, you know, is it the most feminist character to be interchangeable that this character could be either, or because it just doesn't matter. And in a very different way, it reminds me of a conversation on um, the, um, the podcast. Is it, is that racist or whatever it is when they talk mm, about like, mm-hmm. should a character be interchangeable? You know, is it the least racist thing that your lead could be played by any race? And this question is like, well, no, not exactly, because those things actually inform your character. So mm-hmm. you're actually kind of overcorrecting in a potentially negative way. And I'm not going to talk about that in the space. But the reason why I relate that is I think that Sarah Connor's character is a woman action hero. Mm-hmm. So I think what's so great about the character, her and Ripley, is that her womanhood is part of her. So it's not that it was this like action hero that could have been a man, but it was played by a woman as if that's the equality. It's that, no, this is a woman character. Like this character mm-hmm. was written for a woman to play. It's not salt. It's not Evelyn Salt. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that really like ascends to another level where it's like, yeah, okay. I'm not saying that like motherhood and womanhood are, you know, inextricably linked, but the motherhood actually informs her character and what she does and what makes her. And these feminine elements about her are her character that she was the kind of damsel in distress in part one. And the mm-hmm. guy came to save her and what it meant for her to be like a woman in the eighties and dating and the dangers of that and going into clubs and things like that and what that meant. And then now her motherhood matters and that she had to shack up with men to learn skills. And those things Mm -hmm. are all very specifically woman's experiences. And I think that's what I find so incredible about the character. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because she is she is not like the mother who's like making sandwiches and making cookies like she is taking on whatever role her child needs and because she has this specific child who is going to do these specific things like she adapts to that based on the needs of her child and I think that's a part of motherhood that isn't often represented and I think like if we look at just a cold reading of who she is in the first movie and I have not seen that movie nearly as many times so I don't know if I could speak to that but just the the bare bones of her story like there's an element of her being defined by her womb and mm-hmm. that she exists in the story because of the man she is going to produce mm-hmm. not because of who she is and I love how her experiences of that are allowed to change her into this amazing really empowered really strong maybe too strong in some places character and we don't have like a soft Sarah in the second movie and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Sarah in the first movie because that's probably what I would do I would probably be just like her because she just hasn't really like it's like if you put your hand in the fire you're going to get a lot harder than you were before you know but it's it's just interesting and I think um, if we look at Ripley, 
which was originally written as a male character in the first movie, I think. And I'm, I apologize to listeners. I'm not a huge fan of aliens for yeah. many reasons. I think more just because I've seen this movie. I saw Terminator 2 so many times before I saw it. And I was like, oh, that's, that's what You're I like, want. You're like, it's a worse Terminator 2. I know. I know. <laughs> I also am just not super into aliens or space um, unless it's Event Horizon. But um, the thing that I love about motherhood in Terminator 2 that I don't so much like as in motherhood in aliens is that it's all like newt I could really look at as a way of softening Ripley because it's uncomfortable for Mm -hmm. us to see her as this strong character Mm -hmm. and if it were her daughter from the first movie I think I wouldn't see that problem as much um and I don't know if I'm explaining that well but it's like if she was if Sarah was like just her character in the first movie and she was going to do something great. And then in the second movie, like we got to soften her. So give her a kid to worry about. Mm-hmm. And I like that John is a fundamental part of her story, not just something that was added. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm also a little bit less of a fan of aliens than most. Like my ranking goes like alien than Prometheus. And I'm definitely, <laughs> I am in the far minority when it comes to that. And I, but I know when like O'Bannon wrote, alien he basically wrote everything as gender neutral and said like Mm -hmm. put in whoever you think is gonna go here and it just happened to be like weaver was like the best person for that part overall and i think the the script like kind of adapted yeah of course she's the corby weaver she's (laughs) goddess exactly thing from modern family where meryl streep could play batman if if sigourney (laughs) weaver said like hey you know kong versus godzilla i'm playing kong both like, roles. Sure. She could do both. <laughs> you could do it. Sure. You bet. Right. Absolutely. You do whatever you yeah. want. I think that like she, I don't, I don't even know where I was going with that. I just wanted to say, oh, sorry. Like, Superman <laughs> Weaver, we stand you. But no, I do oh, know yeah. like in terms of like motherhood, I know in this movie, like it, how it informs her is how Sarah Connor looks at her versus say Dyson. Like, look, look at what you're creating versus what we've created. Like mm-hmm. she very much contrasts like what men create is something that usually is going to blow something up. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you look at what Dyson has created, and there's something noble about it because it's like we created this thing that is going to not put like real people in the pilot seat, and it's going to like cut down on civilian casualties at that point. It's going to cut down on like soldier casualties at that point. It's going to be much more precise. But it, the problem with that is it assumes that like war and fighting is our default solution as opposed to looking at something like what can we do so that we eliminate war? Like if we can eliminate poverty, if we can eliminate world hunger, if we can take unfettered capitalism out of the equation and make it a more equitable world, like what if we create something for that? But instead, what you're doing is you're taking like really all this genius, because that's really what Dyson is, is he's a genius to take this little chip and create this. What you're doing is you're basically like, I think she even describes like a cog in the wheel, like what you're doing is creating a more perfect way to have more death, a more perfect way to have more bloodshed. And I think there is a little bit of something to this, like as a mom, and again, womanhood is not defined by motherhood. And I do do not want to even suggest that. But what she's saying is like, I've had to like create and build a life inside of me. I've had to carry it. I've had to nurture it with basically my own fluids, my own blood, my own mother's milk. So like, I know what it's like to actually create something that can go out and hopefully do some good in the world versus like, let's create something that's going to bring more death and destruction. 
Yeah, that's the thing that really kind of what I was saying about the nuclear family and parents. Like, I really see that a lot more with Sarah. Like, Mm -hmm. she is the mother that I wanted and she's the mom that I wanted to be. And I don't think I thought about this before you just said that, Mike, but like, I think because I always knew that I wanted to have kids. I think Mm -hmm. I could really interrogate whether or not that's because I knew that's what was expected of me or whether that's actually what I wanted. But I did always want kids and I love my kids, but I am not at all a traditional mom. Like Mm -hmm. I don't want to be that. And I, I wonder if it's because of growing up watching this movie like it made me not as afraid to be a mom because I saw Mm. a different way to be a mom and like she could be strong even if she wasn't running over to John and giving him a hug all the time Mm -hmm. and one thing I found this really cool quote because like one of my favorite quotes from the movie is it's in your nature to destroy yourselves and it's interesting because we're talking about creating AI which we talked about in Ex Machina And it's a very different look at what AI could be and what that creation process is. And I think in Ex Machina, I looked at it in that film as framed as empowering, like I'm breaking out of this system. And here I think it's looked at as very destructive because I think it's filtered through this this male. And I'm saying that in quotation marks and we can talk about like gender norms in a minute, but um, because it's very binary But it's like the women create and the men organize and structure and focus. And that's, I'm not saying that's what I believe. I'm saying I think that's the framework that the movie has, which I think is just interesting to look at. And so the quote that I found is um, from an interview with Preview, and I'm going to link it, from Preview Magazine. And Hamilton characterized T2 as a violent film about peace. It's also a masculine movie about women and a tech-focused movie that's ultimately about humanity. And I think it just finds a way to use the absence of something to present it in someone else so clearly that it's just fascinating, but it never hits you over the head with anything. Even when it is literally telling you, if a Terminator can learn the value of human life, so can we. It never feels ham-fisted, you know? Yes. Agree. <laughs> yeah. That's so Good. good. So is there anything else that we want to talk about? Oh, oh, I want to talk about the response to trauma that I see with Sarah, because that's something that I really, really Mm -hmm. connected with because she has like the entire first movie is a traumatic event for her. And I remember like watching this when I was growing up and thinking, why doesn't she want to hang with John? Like, why isn't she giving him hugs all the time? Why is she so mean to him? And now I see that in such a different light. And I'm like, oh, she just doesn't trust those connections and that doesn't feel safe to her which and I mean if the child itself is born out of this extremely traumatic relationship I imagine that would affect the course of that child's life and your relationship with that child too yeah I mean Sarah has no reason to trust anyone or anything like everyone that much like John everyone that she's been told is sent to protect her is actually like all of the doctors and again all the cops are all her enemies. And I kind of love, there's actually, um, I don't know if it's like the director's cut of hers, just like on the DVD, they put the deleted scenes back in kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, I've seen that one. It's yeah. Bonkers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love, I'm like, I love both. <laughs> I know. Yeah. And there's that scene where she's, when they're repairing the Terminator, because he needs a little bit of surgery. Because uh, if he can't pass for human, he's not much good he's to so them. Good. Um, <laughs> and so when she repairs him, she takes out his chip 
and she's about to smash it when he's offline and John mm-hmm. stops her. And it's a really interesting moment because it really drives home. I mean, I think it happens throughout the movie enough that it it makes the point, but she doesn't trust the T-800 till the last scene. Mm-hmm. Like she she needs him so she uses him much like all the other men that you know john mentions that she uses the men that they meet and she uses them but she doesn't trust him either and so she doesn't really bond with him until that like last second and she kind of has to pull the proverbial trigger because nobody else can but you know she doesn't trust this terminator either and i think there's a lot to that too like the same reaction that she might have been having to john a, she has to protect him and that's her kind of prime directive but she also like doesn't trust or warm up to literally anyone like her quote best friend Enrique she greets with a gun <laughs> like mm-hmm. so right and where are my guns yeah. <laughs> yeah she does have that moment where they she hugs John and she says I do love you and it's almost like it feels like it might be one of the first times that they've had that moment you mm-hmm. know and then they immediately go into fight or flight you know I think there's also though something where John's whole life is defined for him before he's even conceived. Mm-hmm. Like he has a purpose in life and he has like a very clear and well-defined mission. So even more than like a response to trauma, it's like Sarah never loses focus of like what the mission is for John and mm-hmm. anything that will deviate from that is dangerous because anything that deviates from the mission means not just John being harmed, but the potential extinction of all humanity. And that's a really heavy weight to bear when you know, like as a mother, you're not only responsible for raising like your child to be this good person, but like he literally holds the key to humanity's survival inside of him. So there's that scene, like after they're reunited and they break out from the asylum, where she berates John for coming at him. Like she immediately attacks him and she's like, you forgot about the mission. Like, I don't matter. The only thing that matters is you. And you get the great, like, what does that salty discharge coming mm-hmm. from your eyes, you know, <laughs> which is such a great- You're quoting Seinfeld. <laughs> yes. Wait a minute. Is that, did I misquote it? Yeah, that is not in Terminator. So oh what's wrong God. with your eyes? Is Thank what you so says. much. Oh, great. You're I mean, right. I'll take a sign call you. I'm like, is there a world colliding? It is having there a sign call and T2 colliding. discussion. Oh, Excellent. Oh, my goodness. But... Salty discharge. Oh, this is a Jerry Seinfeld moment, but yes. yes. Very much. Now I'm imagining cry? Jerry Seinfeld oh. as the Terminator, and it's just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not a, not the same not the same impact what's the deal with liquid metals I'm yes. sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah but probably. you know but but basically you have now i've lost it sorry um but you have like a, you know she's never going to be allowed to really be a mother because she mm-hmm. can't really impart any of what her own values would be she has like a very clear purpose in raising him so that i think that kind of impacts the way that she reacts to him as well because it's doesn't have really much choice yeah well and that that's the human connection i think which is kind of mm-hmm. ultimately her arc in mm-hmm. the movie because she's like the moment where she's breaking out and she's got the the needle in dude's neck which really freaked me out once i figured mm-hmm. out what that actually meant i was like holy shit like she's like i you you know i'll do it i believe all of you are already dead anyway mm-hmm. so it doesn't matter and then like the moment where she 
chooses not to kill Miles. It's like she realizes that there is still value in connecting with other people. And then once they actually tell Miles, like he's on board. Like he, mm. they don't have to like hold him at gunpoint to go to the lab. Like he, when they take the time to really explain to him what's happening, which is the connection. I feel like that's um, that's kind of the turning point for her. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the moment when and speaking of her as a mother like we see two versions of sarah at the end and there's like the mother that the terminator thinks or that a machine would think a mother in quotation marks mm-hmm. is and then the mother that she actually is and i love that john can tell the difference between that because he mm-hmm. sees her as who she actually is yeah yeah and like <sighs> oh they're so i kind of almost want to go a bit back to your um, point about her trauma response and what that does to her and talk about Sarah's intro in the movie because obviously we have like we've talked about how it's a completely different Sarah and like we know Mm -hmm. that because by the time these movies were in like these movies were in the zeitgeist before I came into contact with them so when Mm -hmm. you think about Sarah Connor just like when you think about Jason Voorhees he's the part three Voorhees when you think about Mm -hmm. Sarah Connor you think about part two Sarah Connor like that's Mm -hmm. who she is And I think it's like really excellent that like the Sarah Connor we left is a woman who like, again, she wore dresses and blow dried her hair and, you know, Mm -hmm. danced around her apartment. And then she goes through this thing where she, again, pulls the trigger to kill the Terminator. Like she does it. Mm -hmm. And then we don't see her again until she's sweaty and doing Mm pull-ups and looking through a small window in an asylum and asking the doctor how his knee is like Mm -hmm. like we're picking up where you know we're grabbing her at such a different point and Mm -hmm. yeah like that could have affected her a thousand different ways and I just god, like I love that it's just like she immediately is like jacked in a jailhouse even though it's Mm -hmm. not a jailhouse but like that's the type of scene it's very Cape Fear Mm -hmm. and uh she's like Dr. Zimmerman. But she still gets to be a human being too, you know, because I think another director would really lean into that machine thing and he doesn't. And I'm going to link another article that talks about how he refuses to use the male gaze on her, mm-hmm. even in a movie where like he pans up on Arnie a lot of times and he never does it with her. The only thing that bothers me in this movie is... It doesn't even bother me. It's probably a me specific thing, but it's how she's never wearing a bra. And that's one of the things where just I look at it and I'm like, that would be uncomfortable. <laughs> I would want to wear she a bra. a lot of running. No, she's like she a next wave femme and she already burned her bra. I know. See, I know. Like see, yeah. my wife is always like the first thing she says when she comes home is like, she takes off the bra yeah. and it's like, thank God this thing is off. She might and not have heard that. One in the mm-hmm. in her in the hospital. I don't know. I was um, wondering because you could take the underwire out. Yeah. yeah. And we all know Sarah would. <laughs> Let's be right. Real. And I'm uh, not making a comment on people who wear bras or not. That is perfect. No, purely a life. comfort thing. But like he doesn't it would be so easy for him to like linger on it. Because speaking of Candyman, we have a scene at the end of Candyman where yes. she is not wearing a bra and we are all very Ooh. aware of that. And Trevor. He doesn't yeah. do that. Trevor, you <laughs> don't. <There's> no... <laughs> yeah, there's no gaze on her or anything. I also love, I'm thinking of it now more about Birds of Prey because oh, you mentioned it. Love it. But that moment in Birds of Prey where she gets handed a hair elastic, of course, is like everyone's favorite mm-hmm. moment. And I didn't really connect it until right now because you connected those things. But I love when Sarah puts her hair mm-hmm. in Me too, tail. when she's about to go out of the, the her room. And she just does it like effort she actually like misses a couple hairs which really bothers me but um (laughs) because i've seen it that many times that i've obsessed over that but i love that she just so casually throws her hair into like a mid pony Mm -hmm. 
like yeah yeah oh, that's exactly what we would all do like I love you that and again that's kind of what I mean but like yeah and like not that like all women have long hair and not that no men have long hair or, you know anything else like that but it is a specific like woman moment yep. where like she throws her hair in a quick ponytail yeah. before she goes out to kick ass and also bang <laughs> goals like I've tried bangs many yes. times and always wanted them to look like that they me too do. but like I can't I'm a glasses wearer I need to just give it up <laughs> but I can't uh, but I can't. Yeah, like she's just. Uh, yeah, well, okay. So and speaking of that moment, well, what's about to happen is I one of my favorite moments in the movie is when he gets off the elevator when she's waiting for the elevator. She's running and he comes out because that's the moment that she sees him. It's like holy shit, this is my nightmare. This is like he's exactly he's back. He probably looks almost exactly the same. Although we could watch the movies back to back and know that's not exactly true, but. The moment where, like, how terrified she is in that moment. And like what you are saying, I saw this first. And so I didn't understand. I was like, don't you know he's the good guy? Look, there's John. And now watching it now, mm -hmm. I'm like, God, how hard that would be for her to trust him, you know? And just the terror. And, like, the fear she experienced. She is fearless. Yes. Like, we come on to a fearless Sarah Connor who stole a paperclip, Mission Impossible style, mm -hmm. to bend it open, to escape from cuffs. She's not afraid of anyone. She kicked her doctor in the knee with, like, armed guards around. Like, she doesn't give a sh she doesn't oh, can we oh, yeah, yes. go for it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, she doesn't give a fuck. And, you know, we have this woman and who's killed a Terminator before. She's not afraid of anything. And then this door opens and it is like, she is on the ground she can't move she doesn't fight him mm -hmm. she doesn't do anything she's just like shit mm -hmm. she just lies on the ground until john gets to yeah her. and even then she's like what are you doing like she can't comprehend what's happening which yeah. i love it and she does it so well the slow motion gasping mm -hmm. oh my god and then the, he'll god. kill us all he'll kill us all he'll oh kill god. us all Oh, oh, God, there's so much I that know. in this movie. <laughs> well, and the other thing is, like, yeah. how long, like, nobody believes her. And John at one point says, like, I didn't even believe her and how mm -hmm. how hard that would be. And when she finds out that they did find the arm, I love that moment of, like, son of a bitch, I knew it, you mm -hmm. motherfuckers. Because it's not just that they didn't believe her. It's that they stole her life and put her in jail for trying to save them all mm -hmm. and called her crazy for it. And it just... They, like... Like, I mean, it's, uh, again, like, of all the, quote, woman story, like, mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about the horror of women not being believed. It happens in Candyman. There's a very yep. similar scene in Candyman that is really reminiscent of T2. Mm -hmm. You know, the woman not being believed, yelling about some crazy thing that happened. It's a really common thing. And, you know, to say the word, like, gaslight, it's obviously... Um, a word that tends to imply the way women are treated mm -hmm. not that it's this definition but that's traditionally the whole mm -hmm. thing and she's completely gaslit like they literally hid the evidence yeah. and let her go down for mm -hmm. it and told her she was crazy yeah and not even like just for their own advancement you know not even to do yeah. it to her but just so that for capitalism mm -hmm. yeah it's the real enemy look at us oh love this movie so much Good. One more thing I want to mention is the part where he has the box of roses mm -hmm. and then they all fall to the floor as he gets the giant shotgun out and then he steps on him. And it's just like this, like, yeah. it's almost like an iconic orgasm yeah. for me because I'm like, this is so amazing. Every single second of this is perfect. 
And again, it's, just, it's so perfect. Sorry. No, just, I, I'm just, sorry, Mike. It's, it's Cameron knowing how to frame action. And I think that yeah. is like something that a lot of directors don't know how to do. Like, I love the John Wick movies, but sometimes there's like too much going on. There's like too many cuts. So, but this is like Cameron, like knowing how to frame action, knowing how to take, and it's, it's done in like a bare bones corridor of a mall right? It's like done in like the back hallways. Like it's not like hundreds of extras running around. There's nothing going on around it. It's simply like a dude with sunglasses covered in leather, slow walking and just, he knows how to make that moment stick without even any effort, like really with like almost no effort. I'm like itching because I love the scene so much. It not only is beautiful, it's not only great action, it is a masterclass of, and I know it's such a cliche word, but I don't care. It is a masterclass of storytelling through action. Yes. You don't know that Terminator's the, mm-hmm. that, uh, the T-800 is a good guy yet. Mm-hmm. You don't know that. Like we kind of do, but like we, that's the moment we learn that he's a good mm-hmm. guy. It's the moment John learns that he's a good guy. That moment is like, okay, this one's bad. This one's good. And he's protecting John. Mm-hmm. We learn all of that in like a few seconds in a corridor in a mall mm-hmm. and no one talks. Like there's like a couple, like quick, like no one says anything. And also from like a storytelling strength perspective, he does that move where he like uh, reloads the gun one handed because oh he's got that much strength mm-hmm. that he throws it in the air mm-hmm. to um I don't know anything about I guns to cock it <laughs> I don't know he does it with his body without flinching which is just like oh because this is a killer robot right. and he can do things that people can't mm-hmm. do like that is something that a large person can barely do two-handed and this guy does it with one hand without any momentum he just like no. does it with one he doesn't hand. even break his stride yeah like Oh my God. So in that moment, John learns that this guy is super strength, massive, probably a cyborg. John learns that this one is the good guy and the other one's the bad guy. And we learn that this one is the good guy Mm -hmm. and the other one's the bad guy and that he's protecting John. Like Mm -hmm. so much happens with like roses in a box. Oh my God. Just And where did he get that box of roses and put a gun in it? I know. (laughs) He's clever. He knows he has to stay hidden. Mm -hmm. Like he's smart Mm -hmm. now. He's smarter than the original guy who didn't try to stay hidden. Mm -hmm. And how good is like Robert Patrick as the T-1000? His cardio. Yeah. Dude, the running with no, without the facial expressions. Fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He's never out of breath for like long shots of Mm -hmm. running. I'm hearing the dun 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 dun. Oh and he's gosh. just never had a breath. I love yeah. the tip to John Carpenter's The Thing at the end of the movie when the T-1000 is basically blown to smithereens and you see him basically bisected and one mm-hmm. s- stretched out and the head is like done and like, it, the head is like upside down and it looks so much like that iconic moment from The Thing. And, I'm like, I, and just even the screeching sounds like really alien. And I just yes. absolutely like, what a great little, like it has to be a tip of the cap to Carpenter mm-hmm. like there's no way it can't I just like love that Carpenter I mean I'm sorry like um Cameron like had his roots in like b-movie storytelling like he the Terminator is very much like a b-movie you know he yes. came up with Roger Corman um he never you know really took you know he never took his eye off that he just knows how to create these moments of movies that are going to like be especially as a teenage boy at the time like as a 16 year old 
kid, like these are the things that are like burned in your brain forever. And it makes you like love these movies and love this mm-hmm. kind of filmmaking. Um, I'm thinking about the ending. I kind of feel like we got to go into it mm-hmm. a bit yeah. if you guys want oh, to. Oh, yes. Let's go for it because oh, it makes me cry. Yeah, the ending makes me cry every time. I like cry just talking about it. I'll probably get a little teary eyed right now. Go for <laughs> um, it. <laughs> but yeah, I just like the, you know, the salty discharge <laughs> that the Terminator <laughs> asked about. I mean, I love that we learn early that that the Terminators are learning computers mm-hmm. that they learn and change and grow. Um, and they've got detailed files on the human anatomy because um, it makes them better killers. But he still doesn't understand humanity, of course. And, you know, that moment where John is crying, he asks him about it and John kind of blows him off. And then when they have their little father-son moment in um, with by Enrique's place, he explains it to him. And the, and the Terminator says, like, he understands his limitations on his humanity, but still finds humanity. Mm-hmm. And he looks at crying John and he like knows, like, I have to die and this is going to hurt John. Mm-hmm. And he says to him, like, I now know why you cry, but that's something I can never do. Mm-hmm. Like, a Terminator has experienced sadness in that moment. Like he's a robot, he's an AI and he's experienced sadness and he knows that John is experiencing sadness. And initially when he sees John cry, he's like, why are you doing that? Mm-hmm. What's wrong with your eyes? Are you in pain? Like, yeah, he doesn't, and then his pain causes this. Right. But he's kind of like, what are you doing? And then he's like, oh, it's about pain. I don't really get it. And then in that one, he's like, no, like I get it. You're crying because you're going to miss me. And it's just like such a moment of like, yeah. Like just gets to my whole heart every single time when they just like watch him go down. Oh, and the thumbs up. Well, and when he's up. screaming, I order you not to do it because there's oh like, oh my god, oh, he begs him. No, but oh. the Terminator doesn't do it. Like that's the one time he doesn't follow that order because it's like he has learned that yes, this is. It's like he understands the emotion. I know that you know that this is probably the right thing to do, but it's just so hard for you to say it right now. And it's just, and that's what I think really humanity is is kind of understanding like I like the way you said it like understanding what your limitations are because we all are going to have them and we're never going to be able to see something completely from another person's point of view but we learn to accept that and it's just it's beautiful yeah and it's my god and then and then Sarah comforts him you know, and it's like she is the one that's that's there. And the one thing went well, I'm not going to go there because I don't want to praise the scene in Dark Fate. But, you know, but we don't see we don't see past that. Even when mm-hmm. she's giving her monologue at the end, we don't see her like with her arm around John or John's like holding the microphone so she can give it or something. It ends right there. And I just wonder what the next days are like for them, you know. But I also kind of don't want to know because it's Mm -hmm. and what we were talking about earlier, Mike, when you were talking about how John has known his entire life, that this is what he is supposed Mm -hmm. to be. And when we talked about the no fate, like Sarah, as a woman in this world, before Kyle Reese showed up, she probably had this whole life mapped out for her based on what she was supposed to be. And she is literally she's a waitress, so she Mm -hmm. is serving people. And John, he is the one who didn't have a fate when this started because his fate was already set before he was even conceived. And so I guess the message of hope at the end could be for him, too. It's like mm-hmm. you don't have to be this leader right. if you don't want to. Which is how the patriarchy hurts men, too. They give men roles and women roles. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Not going to get on my soapbox about that, but, you know. I'm here if you need <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I think Arnie in this movie, I have in my brain that he acts like a robot all the way throughout. And he does. But there's humanity to that. Like, he cracks jokes a little bit. And it's just like this. I don't think this performance is praised nearly enough for, like, just the humor in it, you know? But never so much that he's, like, a wisecracking, you know? Yeah, he's a robot in this movie. But it's used really, really well for laughs. Just, like, the dickwad scene Mm -hmm. is really funny. When he learns Asta La Vista, it's funny because he's robotic. But where he starts to break a little is when the part where they're going to uh, to Cyberdyne mm-hmm. and he's like, promise, you know, swear you won't kill anyone. And he's like, changes it to will not kill anyone, mm-hmm. which I think is really funny. But and then when he shoots the guy in the legs and John's like, what the he'll hell? <laughs> and he goes, he'll live. <laughs> like, that is amazing. You know? I know. But so subtle. It's so funny. And then later when they're when they're inside Cyberdyne. He's like, and he's like, you said you're not going to kill anyone. He's like, well, trust me. And you see him like go through the hole, but he has a smirk on his face when he does he it. Smirks. Yeah. Schwarzenegger is having so much fun in this role. He like poses with his gun. I know. Like the smoke. But there's moments of softness when he's talking to Sarah, too. That's not even like when he's talking to her about Miles and telling her information like he doesn't speak robotically really i think he he like rides that line really well and i think about um neo and the matrix too because that's another i think keanu like leans into that kind of really robotic or one note Mm -hmm. role and it works really well for that part um but i think here it's just it's perfect Mm -hmm. and it's like like you said it's like a master class in in acting like a robot but still giving just enough humanity Mm -hmm. that we believe it you know or that it's not robotic and boring by this time like schwarzenegger he had made twins he had made Kindergarten Cop. Love twins. You know, and Kindergarten Cop. Oh, my God. Love that movie. Just, Sorry. He had made these. It's not a Tuma. Like, he had been. Oh. He had been able to, like, play against type enough. Like, lean into the type he is in those movies. and But play against them enough where, like, he could lean into his persona when he played this movie and wink at the audience, but not do it in such a way that would like really pull you out of it. And I think that's a mm-hmm. really hard thing for an actor to do. To like, yes, you know, The Simpsons was probably just starting by this time. And I don't know if like McBain had been introduced as a character, but you mm-hmm. know, like he was like larger, like Schwarzenegger at this point is like truly like this larger than life person. And I think he was able to have fun with his persona in a way that like other action stars of this era weren't like this isn't something that bruce willis could ever pull off because bruce willis kind of the perception of him is he has his head up his own ass and like really buys into his own hype i love sylvester stallone rocky is one of my all-time favorite movies but i think that he would have i think he has like a limitation in terms of like what he's capable to do as a performer like he would not be able to to play a role like this where he could kind of wink at his past a bit and pull it off in a really in a way that was like believable and rootable do you know what i mean like you know mm-hmm. he's, i think he's tried that a few times or in a, you know and he's done some things like copland where he's like gone completely against type and i think has been like really successful and like arnold plays well against john which i mm-hmm. think is really yeah. fun or i guess Eddie mm-hmm. really well because 
you know, in that scene, like the one we're talking about where um, the dipshit scene and that whole bit where they're getting to know each other, like Arnold's get delivering comedy by playing it really mm-hmm. straight up against a jokey kid, mm-hmm. which is like really what makes it work. And like, I love the moment on the phone where he calls. Oh God, um, Wolf. Talking to Nell. <laughs> and he grabs the phone and starts doing John's voice, which is amazing. Like he does a really hilarious, you know, lip sync mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. while John's like, what <laughs> which is so funny mm-hmm. and then he does like the whole like oh what's wrong with wolfie mm-hmm. and then he hangs on the phone and just deadpans which i guess he's not really deadpanning because he's a robot but he deadpans your foster parents are dead mm-hmm. and like that is high comedy yeah. it <laughs> like, is yeah oh that whole scene just plays out perfectly mm-hmm. oh good like it's that like straight robot up against John and then they kind of start to like find each other in the middle over time. That works so well. Yeah. Well, and there's another moment that's right around that time where John is just realizing that he can tell him what to do. And the guys come over and he's about, I didn't realize what was happening until I think I got older, but he's about to shoot that guy right in the face. And that is so (laughs) scary in that moment. And I watch it now. I'm like, Holy shit. And I think the evolution of this character, I think it really starts there, especially if like, like me hadn't seen the first movie and I was like, Oh, he's, he's the good guy. I always mm-hmm. knew he was the good guy, but to see him just about to kill this person, mm-hmm. just because that's what he does. He's like, of course I'm a Terminator. That's what I do. Yeah. And if you're not bringing the <laughs> like, weight of the first movie, you know, you were about to kill that guy. And he's like, I'm a Terminator. Yeah. Like, whoa, <laughs> which is so funny. It's in the name. Like it's in the name. <laughs> right. <laughs> so good but i'm a terminator is like like that's what i'm saying like that that is subtle difficult line delivery Mm -hmm. to make that a robotic line that is super Mm -hmm. funny yeah to me that is like a perfect cameron storm and like they obviously have that um comedic action ability because they brought it in such Mm -hmm. a completely different way in true lies where it was comedy and action together so good but yeah like how about the how about the moment where he picks up the gatling gun and he kind of like raises an eyebrow and he's like, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, you know, he mm-hmm. found his perfect gun. You know, he's yep. like so Ugh. like he's hit his happy place at that moment. Like he's so happy to have this thing. And you just see it in this like eyebrow raise and a smirk. Like, again, what does John say? He says like it looks, looks good, good on you. you. He's like, oh, like yeah, it looks mm-hmm. good on you. Yeah. Either that or he says salty discharge. Who even who even <laughs> knows at this discharge. point? So <laughs> it's very not he says context, but... so that's I think what he <laughs> yeah. Well, and there's another moment when he picks that gun up and he walks like he just kicks the desk out of the window and he's like, hey, I'm going to shoot all of you, but not actually kill you. And here, camera, look at me doing it because I'm so cool. And it's like speaking of framing him, like there are so many like iconic moments of him just being Mm -hmm. amazing and like walking in through these really dangerous sets where he doesn't slow down at all because it doesn't affect him. Mm -hmm. And it's just so cool. It really well, is like I'm. I'm trying. You know, I really do think that this might be the greatest action movie of all time. I think it is. Yeah, I obviously agree. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> yeah. it's the greatest movie of all time. Okay, so so. Yeah. yeah, so it's obviously the greatest whatever <laughs> no. category it fits yeah. into. But it very much defines what it is yeah. too. And like, there's a reason that he was the last action hero because mm-hmm. he defines what an action hero is. I miss this era of like yeah. going to the video store, getting the latest Arnold or Stallone or, you know, movie and just like really like having that experience with like friends, like on a Saturday night sleepover. I, I feel like old man yelling at the clouds right now when I'm saying this, because 
I can just go downstairs after it and like type in like Arnold and like 10 movies that are at my fingertips will pop right up. And that's kind of nice too. But there's just like something about this like specific period in like Hollywood and filmmaking. Like I really, I really do miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's that experience of out. like loving every second of a movie and mm-hmm. also feeling like it's a story that I connect with, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I had that experience with Birds of Prey last mm-hmm. year because I fucking love that movie so much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. And it's funny, like Corey gives me um, posters every once in a while and I have my Terminator 2 poster and then my new Birds of Prey poster that I got for Christmas oh. and they're right next to each other. Oh, I like, not to, uh, not to tangent too oh, much, but- um, If it's about per- Birds yeah, of Prey, like, then- <laughs> oh, I mean, Birds of Prey was obviously very close to the beginning of lockdown. It was the second last movie I saw in theaters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. And uh, yeah, I like couldn't believe it Yeah, in a way. And it brought back so much of that like film nostalgia where like I wanted all the merchandise mm-hmm. and I wanted to watch it again right away. And I wanted to talk about it with my friends and I wanted to dress like her yep. and I wanted to be mm-hmm. like her um her being like old I know (laughs) yeah Yeah, like all like it made me feel something that I like didn't even know I always say this like there are some movies where I watch them and I know right away and like when I mentioned um, Pacific Rim and Kingsman earlier like those are movies that while I was watching them I was like oh this is gonna be my favorite movie for a really long Mm -hmm. time and um with Birds of Prey I almost like didn't know what I was feeling until um like I knew I loved it and like immediately bought the digital when they released it early and watched it a bunch more times but when everyone was posting like that it had been a year and all those like tweets were coming back up it like flooded back to me that like smashbox released the um lipsticks Mm -hmm. and they didn't ship them to canada and i like frantically messaged someone um one of my friends in the states and was like i'm gonna ship these to you if that's okay i'm like getting them and they gave me like a tote bag with harley quinn's face on it and it was just like this like thrilling feeling like i can't articulate what Mm -hmm. i was feeling but i was like oh man that was a good time. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I had like my popcorn bowl with the Harley Quinn mallet and oh. I like put it on my desk at work and I like miss seeing it sitting there. I'm like, oh man. Mm-hmm. Like, so yes, I agree. Oh. I love birds. But it's like feeling like this movie is so much fun, but it doesn't think I'm stupid, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not gonna like just make a big explosion because that's what we do. Like it actually means something. And like, I cry when I watch that movie too. And sometimes I'll just put it on yeah. if I'm not having a good day and watch the roller skate scene on repeat mm-hmm. on YouTube. And oh my God, it's so good. Yeah, like it's the one, like I rarely buy multiple copies of movies. Like I'm notoriously the person who will buy your old used shitty DVD <laughs> when you upgrade. Cause I just don't mm-hmm. care. Yeah. But um, I see like lots of copies of Birds of Prey in my future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I bought the digital right away, but like I'm still gonna buy the Blu-ray. Yeah. And if they release a special edition in five years, I'll probably buy that yeah. too. That's how I am with the white <laughs> album. I'll buy well, it every mean, iteration. I bought this T2 on 4K, even though I don't have a standalone 4K player yet. <laughs> Someday you will. Yeah. Because, so like, well, it comes with a Blu-ray and you know what? I mean, like, why not just invest in that right now? Like if there's a movie that I'm going to want in 4K, like this is going to be it. So, and the Blu-ray looks freaking amazing. Like on a projector, oh, on a, my, the system downstairs. Absolutely. Like love my little corner yeah. basement theater with like blackout curtains and like sponge painted brick. Like just love it. Oh. 
I just still have the uh, Steelbook mm-hmm. DVD where it's like widescreen on one side. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Like, I have that one. It came with a booklet mm-hmm. of fun facts inside, yep. like how they made the sounds of the bullets hitting the T-1000. It's important information. So, Well, back in my drinking days when I was dating people, I was like, it was my friends were like don't watch t2 when she's drunk because i will talk through the entire thing and explain all of that yeah. in the special features and like yeah and there's this scene where she takes the chip out and just this and it did you know it's her twin and they cut the whole thing out and yeah there's yeah. so many the twins she has a twin and then the, I the know. security guard is a twin yes. that's so cool and the there's so i mean listen i know i was like yeah dog food out of cans microphones into yogurt it's very exciting mm, it's so cool this movie is amazing ah well anything else we want to talk about that we have not talked about or shall we quote slash reenact nine more scenes because i think we're yeah good. let's do okay from the top uh nine three billion people lo- anyways it's been a while i used to be able to quote it a lot more than i can now but mm. i love oh anyway so good yeah like i shared a picture of the traffic in the very first shot and like i pushed play yesterday and I almost started crying because mm-hmm. i just love oh, this yeah. movie so much well, I mean, I don't know if we need an uplifting moment because I have felt so uplifted talking about this, but we can quickly do, and now it's time for an uplifting moment. This is where we share any grounding or coping techniques or self-care that have been particularly effective for us recently. And we define grounding and coping techniques as little tips, tricks, skills, mantras that help us when we start to feel overwhelmed or um, we can feel like the anxiety creeping, like the banana fingers around us. Um, It's little things that help us get through the hard times. Mm -hmm. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or makes us feel better, like watch Terminator 2 on repeat. I can share. I have been listening to Ghost in the Burbs again because I just have had one of those anxiety weeks and I just fucking love that podcast. I can't remember if I've talked about it before, but it's like ghost stories, but not super scary. And her voice, it's a solo cast, so I don't have to negotiate conversation. And her voice is very soothing. And I just love it. Link me to that later. Oh my gosh, it's so good. My daughter and I would listen to that over the summer a lot. And I actually messaged the creator uh over twitter and said like one of the highlights of the summer was like listening to episodes we were waiting for new ones to come out like yeah she's like boston based um mm-hmm. i think all of the shows are like right around like the newton needham area it's a really good show yeah it's, it's it is really oh, fun i forgot that you live around there That's i know right. yeah right in my neck of the woods um oh, so good so very good podcast i know for me like what i'm using right now is my calendar trick which um, because like, I would say like right now, everyone I know is like feeling crispy. Yep. Tensions are really high. We're getting like stressed out and anxious, like much more easy. I know my daughter had like a mini meltdown to, uh, earlier today because like her headphones weren't working in school. And I'm like, well, you know, can you borrow a pair tomorrow? And like, then we just, we'll get them over the holiday and she like burst into tears because she like so needed headphones like all right well we'll pick them up at target we'll just like have them run out to the car you know because we realized at that moment it's not really about the headphones but it's about needing like a problem solved at that point yeah so for me like my calendar trick is like i'll give you an example i have how many days into the school year we are on one side on on the calendar and then how many days are left so i can tell you right now that 
there are 77 days until summer break. And that is basically two weeks and two days in terms of how many working days we have. And then we have summer break off at that point. And that gets me through. I can tell you like um, from Christmas break until February break, there were 35 working days. And then we have a week off and then I have nine days off in a row. And it's things like that that just make me, it breaks down things into these manageable chunks where I don't feel like, oh, June 16th is when the school year lets out and it's been a really hard year it's more like all right 77 working days like that is something that we can do right now it's something i do with the kids a lot when they're like i have so much work we break out a tracker we look at all the stuff and we're like how much can you do today 30 minutes great which of these can you do and then you just like line everything up day by day and that's it you just do it on that day cross it off if you finish early, don't move on to the next thing. Just give yourself the rest of your day uh, and try to make things a lot more manageable and break it into smaller chunks because everything feels so overwhelming right now that mm -hmm. if you can like basically cut things off of the knees and then cut things off a bit smaller, that I find personally find that tremendously helpful for my own overall mental health and well-being. You know, I obviously agree with you because you've seen my very color-coded breakdown what I'm going to do each no. day oh nice uh, it is so yeah. you know that that also works I for me work I do shows with two planners basically it is <laughs> yes because <I>, let me <laughs> hold on I'm like hold on mm -hmm. I need to consult my yeah. planner before I commit <laughs> yep here's mine yes. and I have my color-coded mm -hmm. pins and it has all these lists oh. and yep and I love it I yeah it's just like, I yeah. have enough time. I'm going to do this, this, and this each day. Yeah. And that's how I don't lose my mind. I've got some know? loose papers over here with some stuff jotted down. And I have three different notebooks on my desk that I take notes in, depending on which one's in front of me at the moment. I'm I pretend I don't know that. Like yeah, I don't want to know. Because <laughs> I can't mentally handle it. No. Don't tell me. No. Um, I'd say what works for me um. I am someone who like used to be really, really good at shutting my phone off to watch movies mm -hmm. and I got worse over time. So one thing that really works for me, like scary movies, I mean, listen, you mm -hmm. know, because you obviously have a whole segment called, well, not segment, but a whole show <laughs> series called Comfort Horror um, that like, you know, by being really engaged in horror, it really helps me kind of not think about anything else. Um, so I found watching horror with subtitles, like like foreign horror or foreign language horror, languages that I don't speak, mm -hmm. really is helpful for me because you can't look away. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to grab your phone or be like, oh, I'm just going to go write that thing down that I'm thinking about or whatever. Like you can get, you just kind of, helps me be more focused. I talked about 30 coins already on our podcast is something that I'm watching. It's really effective because it's an hour, it's in Spanish and some Italian and you have to read it and it's scary. Um, really helps me a lot. And another weird thing, I was like, oh, I don't have an answer, but I do apparently. <laughs> I bought a weighted eye pillow, which like I made fun of myself for it because I was like, it's so funny that I think that I'm going to like manage my angst by buying like a $15 device, which of course I agonized over which one to buy for 48 hours. <laughs> but I got this like weight, it's literally like a pillow with flax seeds in it that's um, a rectangle that you put on your eyes. And it's really great because it, um, it blocks out light when you're trying to sleep, which is nice, like an eye mask, but it's not like wearing something on your face, mm -hmm. which I don't like. You can put it in the freezer. So it's like cool and relaxing, mm -hmm. kind of like forces you to like relax your brow a little. And because like once you put it on your face, you kind of can't move, you're less likely to like grab your phone or 
do something that's going to keep you awake. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a very good gift to myself. That's awesome. I, I didn't know those existed. Me neither. That sounds- Someone else mentioned that she was wearing her uh, weighted eye mask. And I was like, tell me about it. Right. And then did a bunch of like research because of course I did and <laughs> bought this like eye pillow. I think they're a popular yoga thing mm. for Shavasana. Mm. I don't do yoga, mm. so I might be getting that wrong. No, that's all right. Yeah. Okay. There you go. And um, I think that might be a thing, but it's literally like probably something you could DIY, but I found a cool company that makes them and it's literally just like a rectangular, it's like a bean bag. Yeah. Literally. Well, Corey got a weighted blanket for Christmas, and I have been using it a couple of times, especially the times when I feel like my anxiety is really, really kicking up, and I just, like, get underneath it, and and it gets hot, but it's, like, it's just stabilizing, you know? That's, like, so interesting, because obviously weighted blankets are very, very popular, but that sounds like a nightmare. I'm, like, I don't know how calming me down is going to be um, done by a thing that's going to pin me and make me feel like I can't move, Mm -hmm. but... Um, but I know that that's not a common experience, yeah. which is why I was kind of like, oh, this is kind of the same principle, but very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, I, okay, this is total tangent, but like Corey sleeps with a pillow over his eyes, and maybe I should get him one because mm. I think I'm telling like you, it. it's a surprising. Yeah. Well, and I like that it's happy. not connected to because like I'll get under the weighted blanket and then like 20 minutes later, I'm like, okay, I, I'm hot and I kick it off and it's, but it's just that initial calming. Um, well, we want to hear from you. What are you watching? What is your self-care? What is um, going on with you? Do you love Terminator 2? What is your favorite movie? What is your grounding or self-care? Or, you know, just what's on your mind? What is the robotic device in your home that's going to most likely to kill you? Do you have an iRobot that you know is just going to be your downfall? Like it's going to trip you down the stairs? Right. Like what is Your Alexa is going to turn yeah. out to be a monster. You know, I forgot to think of a homework question, and mm-hmm. I think that's it. I think what device in your home is secretly yeah. plotting to kill you right mm-hmm. now? Yeah. And how will you defeat it? Um, so you can share all of this um, by following us at Psycho Pod on all of the socials. And you can also join our Facebook group. It's private and moderated and just really special and supportive group. And it's, it's getting some momentum, too. I've noticed a lot of posts mm-hmm. recently. You can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share totally privately. And last but not least, we would really, really appreciate it if you would take just a minute and leave us a five-star review. It really does help people find the pod, and it makes us feel good. And, you know, I don't want to be that person, but there was just that interview about podcasts where they're talking about how it's poof, pow, and it's in your ear holes. It's like, um, no, it's it's a lot of work (laughs) and it's a lot of time and we love doing it and we love that you listen, but it would really help us out. That's if you want to help the pod out, that is a great way to do it. Yeah. I have a lot of thoughts of like the celebrity invasion of like the podcast space that me too. I just am not at a place where I could give you that rant right now and not have somebody call the police. So (laughs) we'll definitely save it for another day. Yeah, maybe we'll introduce a, a section of, like, after the uplifting moment, we'll have our rant moment. Um, actually, that sounds kind of fun. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. Soapbox time. So this is our last episode in February. 
which means it's time to start another theme. And I'm really excited about our March topic, um, mostly because it's one that I don't really know very much about. So I'm excited to talk about it. Um, In March, we are going to be covering schizophrenia, and we are going to start talking about it in the context of Ari Aster's Hereditary. So lots of feelings in that feelings check. (laughs) I'm really excited to talk about this movie. I have not watched it since theaters and both nervous and Mm -hmm. excited. So make sure to watch that Uh, before next week. (laughs) It's a fun little romp. Oh, yeah, you know, barrel of laughs. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you guys are monitors and hereditary. It's going to be some Mm -hmm. fun times. (laughs) Hey, but you know what? That's part of why we like horror, too, is because it makes us feel things. And it's not always feeling joy. Um, So we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us here and there by going to consequenceofsound.com. You can also find other great pods like the Losers Club, Halloweenies, and Going There with Dr. Mike. And Lindsay, where can we find you online and what is coming up for Pod in the Pendulum? Yeah, um, well, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Smash Travis, S-M-A-S-H-T-R-A-V-E-S. You can see where I'm writing. I post all of it there, so that should help you. What is coming up on Pot and the Pendulum? Well, we are knee deep in French extremity. Um, you guys get to watch me learn or listen and witness me learn as much as uh, presumably some of you are because I'm coming along for the journey in French extremity, something that I'm not super versed in. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. Uh, fun doesn't have a singular yes. definition, okay? That's true. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're doing that on the pod and the pendulum, and then I'm really excited about what's coming after that. So, you know, yep. yeah. I want to hear about what you're writing and where you write. Yeah, I'm writing a few places. I'm on whattowatch.com where you'll see me a little bit more than usual, actually, which is exciting. Um, I am still writing and reviewing at Pajiba and CG Magazine, cgmagonline.com. Those are the places to find me primarily. Also, um, you can find me in Grimm Magazine. Um, I need to mention that the next issue just launched in February, so you can read it online for free, or you can order your print copy now, which is really exciting. And you can get a look at my column, Spirit Gum, which explores makeup and horror. So Ooh, that's so exciting! Awesome. And Mike, where can we find you? And can you tell us about this little podcast called The Pod, Pod of the Pendulum? Tell yeah. us more. Tell Sorry. us more. Oh no, no! Didn't mean to steal I... your thunder there. No. Um... <laughs> So we are over a hundred episodes deep now, which I'm really proud of. And, you know, yeah, like I could probably rant forever. Like I got to, you know, I love the show that Jerry and I started and built, but like, you know, Lindsay's just such a tremendous, like when addition to the show. And I think it's like really raising the stakes for what we do. And like, if you enjoyed having Lindsay on or listening to Lindsay today, folks, I can tell you, you get her every other week and we <laughs> go on these tangents and just have like so much fun, but like dive deep into movies. So we are like by now, like our episode in Martyrs Out, it is an episode that will hurt you and leave you in a puddle. <laughs> We're following that up with Frontiers, which is to me, the best remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that we've ever received. Like, and that's another just brutal fucking movie to watch. And that's usually not my thing, but hey, here we are in 2021. As of this release, uh, I did a couple guest spots. Uh, right now, you can hear my episode on the Disenfranchised podcast, 
where I joined their crew for a look back at 1981's uh, My Bloody Valentine. So basically you get, like I've said, three hunks, like just basically three slabs of beef. Like when you look at us, like these just three hunky dudes talking romance and all things Canadian and pickaxe murders. I mean, it's really what more, what more can you ask for to go with like your, you know, hearts and flowers and Valentine's day. Find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. Uh, you can join our Facebook group, uh, pod in the pendulum over on Facebook. I will say that a few listeners have like tried to friend me recently and by and large, I haven't friended them back and it's not personal. It's like, I'm actually trying to tear down Facebook to the bare. Like I've caught probably about 400 people from my list and it's just because like, I just don't like the site, but I'm more than happy. Like I don't post anything really personal there anymore. Every now and again, every now and then, like my wife and I will trade jokes back and forth. Like that's really about it, but you'll find me in the groups there. If you want to communicate with me, like Twitter is usually, it's usually where I like to go. I love Twitter. Like I know people complain about it being a cesspool, but like I found some amazing people and amazing friends through that site. You just got to maintain your feed. Really? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like mute button well, is the most powerful thing in the world. It is. It's amazing. You know, Seven day mute yeah. is my favorite thing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I like, <laughs> let's think about comfort horror movies. You guys remember Joyride? <laughs> yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. I remember the part when Steve Zahn, mm-hmm. it is Steve mm-hmm. Zahn. I was like, is it James? I was thinking, I was like, is it James Conner? I thought you were going to say, Zahn? is it Jay-Z? <laughs> is it Jay-Z or Steve Zahn? <laughs> When Steve's on, he's yelling into the uh, to the mm-hmm. radio at Rusty Nail, and he's like, "I have something more powerful than you. I have the volume knob, and all I have to do to make you go away is turn it all the way to the left, or whatever he says. I don't know exactly right. That's me every time I hit the mute button. Yep, oh, I haven't seen that movie That's in a long energy. time, and I forgot about that, but I want to watch it again now. That movie. And you can mute hashtags too. Like when I know people are going to be super obnoxious about something that's dropping, mm-hmm. just mute it for seven days. No. Yep. I'm good, you know? Well. Love it. And that is our. That's your self-care thing. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it is. Yeah. It's like, that's the real one. It really is. Yeah. Just, and that's just setting boundaries, you know? It's mm-hmm. like this, this energy is not helping me. But yeah, I mean, I have gotten, I have met a lot of people yeah. through Twitter. Like, Mike, I met you through Twitter, mm-hmm. you know? Like. It, I wouldn't be writing if I didn't have Twitter. No. Me, I wouldn't either. Me wouldn't either, says the writer who me, wants to write. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah please hire mm-hmm. me anyways <laughs> yeah but those boundaries are key where can we find everybody on parlor oh no, i'm kidding and me, yes. oh you know oh, what God. i did forget to say where where you can find me yeah also where are you oh that's Jeff? right yeah um i just completely forgot about plugs in our last episode um yeah you can find me not on parlor um you can find me at jim Ferratu on all of the socials uh jim with two ends you can also find me writing for consequence of sound um, and I don't really talk about that that much, but I've been thinking maybe I should more. I'm working on something about the Hotel Cecil and just true crime in general. But yeah, so you can find me writing there and I um, hopefully have the my blog back up, which is I'm really excited mm-hmm. about. But um, still a lot of feelings and a lot of, um, you know, imposter syndrome going on there. So hopefully it'll be up by the time you're hearing this. Um, but yeah, you can find me there and you can also find me on the losers club talking about Stephen King, Stephen King, Stephen King. We are in the middle of desperation and the regulators and Richard Bachman and Stephen King, no matter who wins, we all win because they're great. 
And that's our episode on Terminator 2. This was so much fun. I say that and I mean it every time, but I extra mean it this time because, oh my gosh, I just love this movie so much. And I love people who love this movie and who get, quote it with me and get it when I'm quoting. And Oh my gosh, it's just so much fun. So thank you so much for joining us, Lindsay. This was so much fun. Thank you. And listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. We love you and we are very grateful for you. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And, and we are all, all out, out of bubblegum. Bubble gum. I wish I could do a pop 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 Excellent. Like that was so cute. <laughs> We're really adorable. Consequence Podcast Network.